book of Psalms chapter 99. We've been in a series through the book of Ecclesiastes, but I wanted to pause just for tonight. Uh, One, I needed a little more time with that text, but two, I've been uh, somewhat stirred in in reading through these these psalms, the um, psalms near uh, the 90s and, and 80s. They're called the kingship psalms. And, uh, or enthronement psalms, and uh, I love reading through these passages of Scripture as they uh, really point my mind and heart to the exaltation of God, really just to see how mighty He is and to stand in awe of Him. And uh, I want us to look at Psalm 99 tonight for our Bible study. We're going to come through the text, verse 1 down through verse 9, and uh, I pray there's some things here that we can glean, things that would encourage us, and uh, things that would uh, prompt our hearts just to see the glory and majesty of God here this evening. Notice in Psalm 99, the psalmist says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The King in His might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Moses and Aaron were among His priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon His name. They called to the Lord, and He answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, He spoke to them. They kept His testimonies and the statute that He gave, statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. And all God's people said, I love this passage and several that parallel and are many, very much like it, but I want us to look at the holy Lord reigns. You know, the central thread that holds all of Scripture, all of history, and all of Eternity together is this truth. It is that God reigns over all. It's that He is God, that He is sovereign, that He's in control. And so there is only one God. I know the, Lord, the world around us likes to put forth many gods and many deities, but the truth is there's only one, right? And that one God is revealed in the Scriptures to us. And this God, He alone has all power. He has all knowledge. He has all wisdom. He is all present. Uh, He has all control over all things. And how comforting it is to know tonight that this God is our God. I take that in a very personal way, and I hope that you do too, Christian. Consider this, that this sovereign God, He's your God. He's my God. He is the God of His people. And He's the God who reigns. And it's a shame that, that man in his sin, he invents lesser gods to try to meet his carnal and depraved ideas and desires. But we have a God who truly surpasses really anything that man could ever invent or imagine. And that's one great truth about the one true God. He's beyond really what we could even fathom, what we could invent. Man creates gods within the realm of his own understanding. But God, the true God, is beyond our understanding. And that is one great truth about Him. But this particular psalm brings out the exaltation of this Holy One. The psalmist reveals how mighty God is and that He reigns upon His throne at all times. And this psalm is the last of what is known as the enthronement psalms, as I mentioned a moment ago. It emphasizes the kingship of God, but ultimately points us even to the the reign of Messiah who is enthroned as the king. 
And so with the plain revelation of who God is and the fact that He reigns over all, the psalmist calls upon the people in this text to fear Him, to bow before Him, to stand in awe of Him. You see, there should be a reverence and humility before the God that we read of here in this text. He repeats in this psalm a central attribute of God, and that is the attribute of His holiness, that God is holy. That is part of His nature and character. And because the Holy One, because God is the Holy One, that means that He reigns over all things in a perfect, righteous manner unlike any others. His reign flows from His perfect character and wisdom. And so these truths really uh, stir our hearts to contemplate His character and nature, but also really put us in our place to realize who we are. We're nothing like this God. He's so far above us, gloriously above us, majestic in, ho- in His holiness. So the question for us as we look at the God who is represented here, do we see Him? Do we see God as the Scriptures reveal Him as He is? Do we bow our hearts and our minds in wonder before His greatness? Do we worship Him as He deserves to be worshipped? Do we declare His glory among the world around us? These things ought to stir us to stand in awe of Him. Notice with me in our notes here tonight, three things I want to bring out of this text, and I pray they'll stir us in our hearts. I want us to see the call from His reign. Number one, the call from His reign. What is the calling that we get from this text that is being put forth to the people of God and ultimately the world uh, as the Scriptures declared? Notice with me, letter A, this evening, that God's reign must be recognized. Now, God reigns regardless of whether man recognizes it or not, but the call from this text is for humanity, especially His people, to recognize the reign of God, the reign of His kingship, that He is Lord. Now you notice in verse 1, and the psalmist brings this right at the forefront, these three little words with a very plain statement, the Lord reigns. Those three words are, are, are words that bring immeasurable comfort and confidence to me. The Lord reigns. I mean, we, we could spend all night just in that little, that little segment, the Lord reigns reigns, right? It is a wonderful little statement. Spurgeon rightly said of this statement one of the, that it is one of the most joyous utterances which ever leaped from mortal lips. And I agree with him. The Lord reigns. Can you imagine if that was not true? What if the Lord did not reign? What if He was not the all-powerful sovereign that we know Him to be? That would be a devastating reality, right? But this is a joyful statement. The one statement here encompasses a vast amount of truth and application for us. And so the psalmist states this to lay the foundation for the rest of this psalm. Everything's built on these three words, the Lord reigns. And may I say that this statement is a foundational truth to all of Scripture, all that we know God to be, all that we know truth to be. When he makes this statement, means that the Lord, He is King who exercises His rule over all else. Now, there have been many kings and rulers in history, in the history of our world, 
that have exercised their rule and their dominion in certain regions and throughout their kingdoms, right? Perhaps these kings have thought themselves to be quite powerful. Many have been in an earthly sense. But their earthly reigns all have come to what? An end. As well as their mortal lives come to an end. But the Lord here, the Lord is king over all kings. He is Lord over all lords. He is the eternal ruler who has no beginning and has no ending. Therefore, as the eternal ruler, his reign has no beginning and no ending. You see, his dominion is not limited to one track of land, but is unlimited to all of creation. He reigns over that which is seen. He reigns over that which is not seen by us. He reigns over that which is within time. He reigns over that which is beyond time and outside of time. Any any facet of space and time and existence that you could think of in your mind, God reigns over all of that, every ounce of it. His eternal nature makes Him the unmatched and unparalleled King over all. The psalmist said it this way, and the psalms is full of verses that portray this. He says, the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he is put on strength on his belt. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old, you are from everlasting. That description portrays the eternal nature of God. His throne is from everlasting. His throne knows no beginning. The Lord was never voted into office and He'll never be voted out of office. He holds this as a permanent position. You'll notice that He says He sits enthroned in our text. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Now, where do we see the cherubim? Now, the cherubim, we know they are angelic beings, right? Described throughout Scripture. They're angelic beings that are pictured and portrayed portrayed in, in much of Israel's history and in a lot of their architecture and and even in the instruction given to them through scriptures, they were woven. I think it's interesting to note, you look at Israel's tabernacle and temple, images of these cherubim were woven into the veil that separated the holy place and the most holy place, that veil that guarded off. If you walked into the holy place and you about, about like walking into this room and you look at those doors, a veil is there into another area, but there on the outside of it, is these cherubims, these beautiful cherubims woven into the fabric of the, uh, of the veil. We find later also within the tabernacle and temple, what was structured on top of the mercy seat that sat on the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place? What was the image that was on top of that seat? It was cherubims carved out of gold, made of gold, facing each other. Exodus 37, 7-8 describes this to us, these two gold cherubims. The Bible says he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on the one end and the one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat. He made the cherubim on its two ends. What a beautiful image and artistry this must have been for that day and time. Now, this description of his presence, understand this, is shown in verse 2. 
as he says, the Lord is great in Zion and he is high above all people. So, so all of this is going to tie together here in just a moment. But on the holy mount, Jerusalem, stood the sanctuary with the holy of holies. The throne room, as many would portray it. And in this room, one commentator says, was the footstool, the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim carved on its lid. The Lord sat enthroned above the cherubim, so the throne of God is associated with the Ark of the Covenant, and all of this was the earthly representation of the heavenly scene. Now, with this psalm, while this psalm portrays the Lord's presence among Israel as their true king, that the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, that was the footstool of His throne, it all pictures a greater reality. And that is the heavenly throne room of God, where He sits enthroned over all. Now, have we ever been given just a little glimpse into that throne room? We have, haven't we? Isaiah chapter 6. I love this passage. I love this passage. I want to just read a few verses to you here from this passage. Verse 1 through down verse 4. Might read verse 5 too in a moment. But here Isaiah gets a vision that gives him insight into the throne room of God. And the Bible tells us, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And here's Isaiah's response, and I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What do you find within this viewpoint? You find these angelic beings, although described differently. They're described as seraphims here. You find these angelic beings here in the throne room of God as Isaiah gets this glimpse of the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And these seraphims in that throne room, covering their face and their feet, and two of their wings were used to fly, what are they shouting? What are they saying within the midst of this throne room? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's probably my favorite hymn we sing, is holy, holy, holy. I love the attribute of God's holiness. Why? Because that attribute sets him apart in all of his other attributes. It distinguishes him as completely separate, otherness, otherness from us, separate from us. And so imagine seeing and hearing such a sight. Well, we see Isaiah's response. His response is, woe is me. I am undone. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and my people are are unclean as well. And so the psalmist here in our own text, here's what I want you to get. He brings an earthly imagery to this heavenly reality by saying that the Lord sits enthroned above the cherubims. 
The picture there is his footstool in the Ark of the Covenant that portrays the bigger picture of his throne room in heaven where he is seated high and lifted up. Now what is fascinating with all of this to me is that this highly exalted God who sits between the cherubims has condescended to man that man may know him and commune with him. That goes beyond what my mind can understand. You know, in the Old Testament, we see that this was part of the purpose of the mercy seat, right? And the ministry of the high priests of Israel. Exodus 25, 22, There I will meet with you, the Lord says, at the mercy seat. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So you understand the most, that most holy place was a type and picture of the throne room of God which could only be accessed by one person, the high priest, and even he had to come with some credentials, with a requirement. What was the requirement for even him to come into that place and commune with God on behalf of the people of Israel? He had to have blood for the atonement. Sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat to atone for the sins of himself and the sins of the people, right? Now, isn't it wonderful when we see the New Testament connection and the fulfillment of this picture in the one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, that Christ Jesus, our great high priest, has brought atonement before God, giving us access to this great heavenly King, our one true God. So you understand that instead of coming by way of the Old Testament, through a high high priest one day a year, through a blood atonement of an animal. Instead, we believers have direct access to the real throne room of God by way of Christ's own blood. Hebrews spells this out for us wonderfully. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. By way of Christ's work, we have direct access to our great God. We have great access to the sovereign king that we read of throughout the scriptures. You see, the reign of the Lord must be recognized and revered by all creation, especially his own people. As we see here, the Lord reigns. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. But notice with me, letter B tonight, that this also, his reign, not only should it be recognized, but God's reign demands a response from people. It demands a response. And what is the response? What is the call of action here? He says in verse 1, the Lord reigns, and by way of that, He says, let the peoples do what? Tremble. Let the peoples tremble. I mean, shouldn't the people of the world tremble before the Almighty Sovereign who, who is described here? Yeah, they should. That's the command throughout all of the scriptures, right? Psalm 114, 7. Tremble, O earth, 
Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. And so the psalmist continues and he says, let the earth quake. Do people tremble before the truth of God? Do they fear him for his greatness, for his holiness, for his sovereignty? We find that man does not tremble before God as he ought to, does he? And here's the astounding truth with man's sinfulness, his depravity, how dull and dead he is. Paul describes wicked man in this way in Romans 3, 18. There is no, what? Fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God before their eyes. Why is that? Because man's inherent nature of sin, depravity, blinds him and dulls him from recognizing and reverencing the God who created him. Now, man thinks himself to be the one who reigns. That's another part of the problem, isn't it? He thinks himself to be the one who reigns in the world. But there, the truth is, there's coming a day in which all who think they reign and all who do not fear God one day will bow before this one true king and confess who truly is the one who reigns. And he has a name, and it's a name that's despised by our culture and society. His name is Jesus. And how glorious is that name? How wonderful is that name? How sweet is that name? How powerful is that name? Man will bow before King Jesus. God said it this way in Philippians 2, 10-11, Therefore God hath highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, it pains me to hear and see so many people use the name of Christ in vain and use it as a curse word and such wickedness that is. But you understand there's coming a day when those very same lips who use the name of Jesus by way of vulgar and vanity will one day with that same tongue confess Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. You see, the ultimate response we should have as His people who do know God and who do fear Him because we know Him is in verse 3. What does He say in verse 3? Let them praise your great and awesome name. Awesome name. You know, we say something is awesome quite often, right? But the real connection to awesome is is that underlying word of awe. Awe, being awestruck of something, and awesome is rooted in being awestruck, really, of God, the awesomeness of His nature and His name and His character, right? And so praise and exaltation should be outflowing from God's people. We are to be the people who praise the Lord and point the world to Him. We are to be the people who recognize how much He is to be feared and how holy He truly is. This is what the psalmist says at the end of this little verse here. Holy is He! Exclamation point. Holy is He. How holy is our God? David said it this way in Psalm 103, 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. 
You understand that the holiness of God is so key, so foundational, yet so misunderstood and so not recognized. Even among many of God's people in the professing church today, there is a watered-down view of the holiness of God. Everyone wants a a God who just loves and includes everyone. That is not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is also a God of justice and wrath and righteousness. Many who claim to know God do not act like they truly know God, and perhaps because they don't know God. See, we must see afresh the holy and exalted nature of God. One commentator said it this way, I believe it's Alan Ross. He said, the realization of who this God is and what He is like is terrifying. Those who trust in the Lord find Him awe-inspiring, but those who refuse will discover how terrifying He will be. His holiness ought to make us tremble. And for us who do see and know Him, we do tremble before it, don't we? But the wicked world around us has no clue what they are spurning when they reject the holy nature of God. You see, there's coming a day in which every wicked man and woman will stand before God in His holiness on Judgment Day. And all things will be laid bare there. The holiness of God will traumatize them. I love this quote from R.C. Sproul. He says, The holiness of God is traumatic to unholy people. And that is a great truth. The holiness of God is traumatic to unholy people. And so the calling here from this passage, this, this, this section here, the calling from His reign is to fear Him. Fear Him and praise Him. That is what we as His people are called to do. Notice with me, number two, the conduct of His reign. The conduct of His reign. And notice how He reigns. Notice how He works. You notice that in His reign, God works, firstly, in righteousness. God works in righteousness. As you come down through this text, since He is the supreme ruler and has all things under His sovereign control and power, we should expect that our God will do what He pleases. And here's the comforting truth, Christian. All that God is pleased to do is that which is righteous and just. There's no such thing as unrighteousness with our God. There's no such thing as injustice with our God, as we looked at last week in Ecclesiastes. You look at verse 4, and what does he say? The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. You notice that the Lord as king over Israel, he loves justice. In fact, when it comes to the opposite, he has a hatred for unrighteousness and injustice. Because God always does what is just in accordance with his righteous character. There is no case in which injustice could be said of God. And when it comes to God's sovereignty, there's all kinds of false claims. God's not fair. God's unjust. No, friend. He is perfectly just in every aspect of his character and all that he does. You remember when Abraham is questioning, asking the Lord. He says, I'm going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, that place of wicked depravity. He, He asks, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just or what is right? 
And the answer to that question is yes, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Righteousness and justice, the psalmist says, are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. You see, with his justice, the psalmist says, you have established equity and have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. See, God has done what is right because God is righteous and loves righteousness. He despises injustice and loves justice. That is who he is. Now, we look at our world and we know there's a lot of injustice in the kingdoms and nations of this world. We learned that in Ecclesiastes last week, very plainly. So much injustice, so much oppression, and Solomon's going to give us more of that in, in the next text. But what we find is that justice is never lacking when it comes to God and His reign. He reveals that He is the true righteous judge of all the nations. And that truth, friend, ought to make us glad that He's righteous and good. We must not neglect the conduct of His reign, that what He does is always righteous. And because of that, because of the conduct of His reign, that He is righteous and just in all He does, God is worthy of exaltation. Let her be. He is worthy of exaltation. Now, this ties into our praise from, from the calling, but this, this, this is also interwoven with the conduct that we see here of how God works. He's worthy of exaltation. His conduct of, oh, in His reign demands our exaltation. In verse 5, notice what he says, exalt the Lord our God. That's the call to his people. That's, that's our command, exalt him. You see, God has commanded his people to exalt the Lord and to make him known for who he is to the rest of the world. I want you to note that. We exalt him for who he is, not who the world portrays him to be or who man would like him to be. There are aspects of God's character that our world around us does not like. They don't like that He judges sin. They don't like what He says is righteous and just when it comes to homosexuality or fornication or lying and deception and greed and all of the other things that we see are prominent in our culture. We want a God that's all love and all inclusive, right? You understand that love itself is sinful. And it contradicts what is righteous. This, we must see, is that there is one true God who is holy and righteous. And He alone must be exalted for who He is. Not watered down to what the culture expects Him to be, but exalted for who He actually is. What is it to exalt anything? It is to lift up. It is to put attention on whatever or whoever is being exalted, right? And far too many other things and people are exalted in this world when God should be the one who is exalted. You see, we are not called to know Him and keep Him to ourselves. God demands that His people exalt Him among the heathen. Now, it's easy to exalt him in a building like this among the righteous, right? But to step out into the godless world around us and exalt him, that's a whole other story. Why? Because you put yourself at risk. Risk of being mistreated, risk of being rejected, risk of, of, of having uh, uh, opposition or even oppression, even persecution. But the call upon us is to exalt him 
before the world around us so that they also may see the glory of his nature. David prayed in this way and invites uh, the people in this way. In Psalm 34, 3, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. God's people must band together in this invitation. Well, how do we exalt him? Look at what the psalmist says in the next verse. What does he say in verse number 5? He says to worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Again, worship. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. You see, true worship really is to bow oneself before this God. To bow oneself in reverence and adoration and praise. The act of bowing to the ground represents worship. We'll see that in Scripture and obedience. So that term worship, it was used for all aspects of worship. Here they're called to bow at his footstool, one commentator says. The footstool in this passage in reference to Israel, the footstool is pictured as the ark, right? It signifies that the throne is above it so that the focus of this worship is to the one who sits on that throne. People bow down before the Lord at his feet, so to speak, right? Psalm 132.7. Psalm says, let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. People of Israel gathered to the tabernacle to worship there where the Ark of the Covenant was. To bow before his footstool, his throne, and acknowledging the sovereign king over them. Now we see worship in the Old Testament clearly demonstrated, but is it demonstrated in a different way in the New Testament? It is. We don't go to Jerusalem, we don't go to a tabernacle or a temple, and we thank God for that. Instead, what has happened? The church itself is the temple of the living God. And we worship Him wherever we may be. We reference worship most commonly as when we come together as God's people, right? Even this moment right now, we profess to the world that we gather to worship the King. Every Lord's Day that we gather together, we are professing to the world that we've gathered to worship the King. You understand? While we're in church, people are driving by and seeing cars in this parking lot. Every Lord's Day, every Wednesday evening. That itself is a testament that there is a group of people that gather in one place for a purpose, and that is to worship the King. To worship King Jesus. That's a demonstration of that. But you understand that worship extends beyond just the public gathering of God's people. All of God's people should have their own personal lives bowed before God, bringing attention to the God who reigns over them. My life and your life should point people to this God who is holy. I want you to see a great example. I love this example of the church in Thessalonica. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians for a moment. I want to read verse 2 down through verse number 8. 1 Thessalonians 2, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2 through verse 8. The Thessalonians display a wonderful example to us here in regard to living out their faith and exalting the gospel of Christ in the world. You notice that Paul writes to them, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, 
and labor of love and steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. What do you notice in this text with the Thessalonians? We notice in this text that they had been converted when Paul brought the gospel to them. According to God's work of grace, in their hearts, changing them, transforming them, so that they received it even in much affliction. They had joy in the Holy Spirit. And what does Paul point out? Their labor of love, their steadfast hope, so that they were examples to the believers in their region, but also beyond their region. The light of the Thessalonians spread abroad, magnifying and exalting Christ and the gospel. Paul says, so that we need not say anything. Y'all are doing our job for us. Spreading the gospel and how you're living and how you're speaking. God's work of grace so changed them that they were beacons of light to the one true King Jesus. Their faith and following of Christ evidenced Christ in their life. What a challenge that is to us. Because my, my desire for us as a church is always to be the brightest light that we can possibly be for Christ right here where we're at. Because there are thousands of souls heading for hell in our immediate community that need the light of the gospel that can flow out in power from Lee Creek Baptist Church. That's one way in which we exalt him in his reign. Notice with me number three and lastly, I'll try to be quick. I want you to see the compassion of his reign. And with his compassion, we see that God is merciful to his people. And I'm so thankful for this. I know you are too. God's merciful to his people. Even though he's mighty and powerful and executing justice on the wicked, he is so merciful to his people. Because we too were wicked at one point, right? And we still wrestle with our own flesh, which is wicked. But you notice in verse 6, he mentions Moses and Aaron and Samuel as those who called upon his name. Now, what's the purpose of calling upon the name of the Lord? We call upon the name of the Lord for many things. We call upon him for, for help, for deliverance, and we call upon him for instruction, for wisdom, for guidance, as a means of worship. We also call upon him for what? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And what does the psalmist say took place as these servants called upon the sovereign God? The Bible says that the Lord answered them. He answered them. Now, you think about that for a moment. What kind of God who is eternal, immutable, perfect and holy and all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, all-wise, infinite beyond what we can conceive in our minds, what kind of a God of this nature 
condescends to listen to such mortal beings as us. The fact that He hears us is an act of mercy. And He listens to us as His people. Friend, that's a demonstration of how much He loves us. 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. May we not forget the mercy of God day by day. You look at verse 7, and what does he say? In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. So they've called upon him, and they have, he has given them their instruction. He has heard. He's given them their instruction. You come on down to verse 8, and he says, O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a what? A forgiving God to them. He delights not only in justice, but also in forgiveness. See, we call upon Him for our needs and requests, but more importantly, every day we need to be calling upon the Lord our God for forgiveness. Why is that? Though we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and you're eternally secure in Him, that can never change. We daily wrestle with the flesh and we fail in that battle. We sin in our flesh. And if we want to have the purest, most joy-filled fellowship with God, we need to recognize that sin and confess it unto Him to walk with Him in true communion and fellowship with this King. David, who was the earthly king of Israel, knew who the true king was and who his sin was against. Psalm 32, 5, he says to the Lord, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. You know what Selah means, right? Selah, Selah, I don't know how you pronounce that right. Everybody says it different. And there's some debate as to the real meaning, but ultimately it means pause and ponder. Think about what was just said. God heard his prayer and forgave his iniquity. I want you to think about that, Christian. When you come to the Lord and you confess your sins day by day, God hears the prayers of His children and forgives their iniquity when, he, when we truly come to Him, repentant and confessing those to Him. He forgives His people as we read here. Lastly, in letter B, just to close it all out, I want you to see that God demands worship from all. This is really just a bookend. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. What a bookend that is. The command to worship Him, friend. You and I as His people, we're accountable for that. We're doubly accountable for that. Because all of creation is accountable to worship the Lord. The reality is, is that those who go on in their wickedness and refuse to worship the one true God, they are living in perpetual rebellion and disobedience for which one day they will give an account. You see, God is so compassionate to us. He's compassionate to us in this world, even His enemies, in allowing them to continue on in that rebellion. Every day we breathe, we breathe in mercy, even for the wicked. But there's coming a day when God's wrath will no longer be held back by mercy. Mercy will break forth and wrath will burst forth. 
and the wicked will receive their just reward. So the priority for us in this passage is to recognize, recognize this true king. Recognize him, that Christ is the sovereign king who's worthy of of and demands worship from us. Christian, you ought to walk with God in such a way that you daily fear him. That you daily are in awe of him. That you daily exalt him in your life. I think that psalm presents a great challenge to us to do that very thing.